Welcome to Tangents. I'm Susan Farley, Project Manager from McLaughlin Research Corporation, and I support the Public Affairs Office at the Naval Undersea Warfare Center, Division Newport. June is Pride Month, and we're excited to bring you a special series to celebrate. Vima Manfredo is Division Newport's Special Emphasis Program Manager for LGBTQ A, and she has taken over as host of Tangents. She's assembled a wonderful lineup of guests, and there have been some great, thought-provoking conversations detailing the struggles and the goals of the LGBTQ community. In this episode, Vima talks with friend and Newick colleague Pete Rogers about his love of flying, growing up in a deeply religious family, and his experience in the military. Pete works in our Human Resources Department, and he shares some pretty great advice in this episode. If anyone had a chance to attend a Pride Month commemoration in Chafee Auditorium a few years ago, you got to hear from a photojournalist who captured some great images of servicemen and women, Pete included. And also, Pete talks about his pals Morgan Freeman and Michelle Obama. Have a listen. Welcome back, everyone, for to Tangents, the podcast for New Exhibition Newport and NFC in general. Um, I am not Susan, as you've noticed. I taking over the podcast, uh, although Susan's here too. Hi, everyone. <laughs> uh, so today we have a very special guest, our very own Pete Rogers. Hi, Pete. Hello. Hey, Vima. Hi, Susan. Hi. Uh, so Pete, let's start with introducing yourself uh, to our listeners. Just let us know who you are and what you do. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm Pete Rogers, and um, I... Uh, I'm a, currently a CEPM on the EEO CEPM team. Um, I'm the American Indian CEPM currently. Previously, I, I held uh, Vima's role as the LGBTQ CEPM, uh, the very first one that Newick had. Uh, that was quite an honor. And um, I'm currently in Code 1012 Screening and Staffing Specialist for HR. So that's where I'm currently working. And you do a fantastic job. Um, I did steal your job for the CEPM, um, but you just moved over to be a supplement for another great community and yeah. you've done such a great job on both of those but I wanted to bring like your story uh your basically your life story to our listeners so um sure. let's start for from the very beginning tell us a little bit about your family and your coming out story sure yeah, yeah. um so I, I grew up in a um a very southern fire and brimstone religious conservative uh military family so Marine Corps father, uh, Colonel, and a, a mom that was uh, very high up in the uh, kind of Southern Baptist church uh, scene down in uh, the South. I, I knew I was gay, um, uh, probably around age 12, uh, somewhere between 12 and 13. I guess that's when I kind of acknowledged it myself, but I uh, didn't really come out to anyone of my friends until closer to, to age 16. Um, and my family was, uh, you know, where I came out to them was actually uh, shortly after that. But going back before all that, um, probably around eight to nine years of age, I already knew that I was uh, con- condemned to hell and uh, faced disownment from my family and the church that uh, my family had me belong to. Just to give you perspective, I mean, my family was so ingrained into uh, the church scene that, that uh, my family not only went to church on Sundays, but... Uh, three days a week, we had what we called family church, which uh, we would gather just as a family and, and do more Bible study and, and stuff like that. But um, unbeknownst to me, at the time, my parents suspected that I was gay. And instead of having the vocabulary to talk to me about it, they actually used the Bible to condemn me for it. It kind of put the fear in me to keep me from ever saying it 
eventually that came to fruition and uh, I was eventually on my own at age 14 living out of a small hangar uh, in an airport uh, just outside Washington DC and I had this love of flying um, that I just I don't know where it came from but uh, flying was my my passion and in some sense it was um, it was like the, the opposite of the fear that I had and the guilt I had for being gay and flying made me feel like I was in control of my life when the rest of it was seemingly out of control for such a young kid. But at the airport, I would wash planes and mow grass and pump gas in exchange for flight time. And that was my passion. So instead of really, um, you know, pursuing, focusing on myself internally, uh, outwardly, I was just focusing on, on flying. I eventually joined an organization called Civil Air Patrol, uh, which uh, is a cadet organization, quasi-military, supported by the Air Force. Um, and that organization uh, kind of kept me on a path towards the military. And the old dogs at the airport, they call them, which are like all retired uh, military uh, retirees that were all pilots just hanging out at the airport. And the old dogs kind of took me under their wing, uh, mentored me and coached me in aviation. And um, I ended up becoming cadet of the year in the Civil Air Patrol, and uh, I was rewarded an F-15 incentive flight out of Langley Air Force Base. It was August 29th, 1991, but who's keeping track? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, and honestly, the reason why I brought that up is because that's when, um, as a young teenager, that's when I felt like I was on top of the world, like literally. Uh, in the F-15, we went down the runway, the fighter jet, sucked up the landing gear, went pure vertical, climbed to 56,000 feet to the point where I could actually actually see the curvature of the Earth and a couple stars. Uh, so I was on the edge of space. And um, that was the first time in my entire life that I felt confident that I was going to be okay as a gay kid and that I would get through it somehow. Wow. Um, yeah. You saw the edge of the world, and that that is amazing. Mm. So one of the messages that um, I tried to bring as the second sub-bomb is bringing an understanding that a lot of people, a lot of people from the LGBT community have a chosen family and sometimes this family comes from work environments because we don't have that family um, support at home. So how did your chosen family and this organization help you through, throughout the years? Well, I, I think the short of that is, is that my friends are my family and, and have been for many years. You know, we call them surrogate families in some circles, but, uh, but I, I think it's very common among, you know, gay kids that are not able to turn to their own family for support or, you know, the things that families would normally provide. So, um, you know, we, we find it other places. So my friends became my family. And I mentioned before the old dogs, as I call them at the airport, um, they never asked me, you know, why I couldn't go home and why I spent so much time there rather. Um, but I think they knew. And the unspoken um, part about the gay stuff um, was not as important because Uh, they accepted me through leadership. Like, for example, um, there's a guy that was uh, stationed at the Pentagon as a colonel. His name is David McLeod, and he became like a surrogate father to me. He and his wife um, were just amazing. But he was not on flight status, even though he's a fighter pilot, because he was stationed at the Pentagon. And uh, he went out out to the local airport where I was pretty much living, and um, he ended up taking me under his wing and and becoming my primary flight instructor. That, that carried with me through all the way through to him you know, and the annual dogs helping writing letters, helping me fill out applications to college and making calls and stuff. So uh, so I, I did develop a support network and um, 
Dave McLeod, God rest his soul, ended up uh, a three-star general in the Air Force uh, as the Alaskan Air Command commander out in uh, Anchorage, Alaska. And uh, he unfortunately died in a plane crash out there while currently serving as a three-star. Um, and um, that was one of the biggest uh, blows in my life, my, you know, the greatest mentor I ever had, and uh, the one adult that I looked up to the most I had lost. But nonetheless, what he left behind for me was the legacy of me knowing what family felt like. And that turned into a home of openness and honesty uh, over the years uh, and, and seeking that out. So, so I turned out pretty good because <laughs> I do have a sense of, of home because of people like him. And I, wanna, I wanted to talk a little bit more your, about your personal achievements. Uh, you mentioned that you're a pilot. Um, mm-hmm. What else have you done? <laughs> well, I mean, I've mentioned the military thing, and, you know, I think that, you know, maybe folks might not understand the relationship between being gay and, and my history with the military. You know, when you grow up in a military family, that's what you know. And for me, joining the military was like a no-brainer. You know, military family, uh, it would pay for my college. Uh, it would get me away so I could try to figure myself out and where I fit in in the world. And um, so, you know, I joined the military, the Air National Guard, and at the same time, I was putting myself in through the process of getting into college. And, um, you know, I, I, I went to Daniel Webster College, which is an aviation program up in, um, in Nashville, New Hampshire. And the old dogs at the airport, they gave me so much flight time. So by the time I showed up at college, um, I actually had more flight time than the instructors had. So I was pretty much teaching them and breezed through college. <laughs> um, nice. But, you know, from, from there, from college, I graduated and uh, I worked for Cape Air and Island Air, which are small regional airlines in the Cape and Boston area. And I worked my way into the op- becoming like the operations manager and director of HR. And um, and at the same time, paralleling my, my role in the military in the Air National Guard as an air traffic controller. Um, and I, after college, I lived on Cape Cod at Otis Air Force Base. And um, from there, that's where I met... Uh, my partner, my husband, uh, David, they met in, uh, in P-Town uh, almost three decades ago, actually. Wow. And uh, <laughs> that's, that's a funny story, <laughs> real briefly. Um, so in Provincetown, there's uh, this thing called Tea Dance, which is like a, a gathering between like 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock for anybody and everybody, all walks of life, to come and just, uh, it's an outdoor venue with music and, and cocktails and people laughing and having fun in the light of the day. It's a, it's a nice time. But it lets out at 6 o'clock and all, like, 1,200, roughly 1,200 people in shorts and T-shirts and shirtless guys and stuff letting out onto the main street all at once. I'm walking with a friend of mine as we're just leaving, and I look over and I see David, not knowing him at the time, and he's reading this book that's, like, super thick. I mean, like, he's just sitting on the steps, and he's not looking at anybody, not checking anybody out. And uh, long story short, as I whacked my friend on the shoulder that I was there with, and I said, that is what you call husband material. He is not interested in looking at anybody. <laughs> he is deep in the book. <laughs> so uh, after taking him flying on our first date, we've been together. <laughs> and um, David and I are like the yin and yang. It's kind of funny being with it. Um, we are definitely polar opposites, um, but we complement each other. Um, he's the introvert. I'm definitely the extrovert. Um, I'm like the meat and potatoes guy with dessert, and he's like kale, quinoa, and CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we've been together for, like I said, like 26 years. Um, his family is accepting, uh, unlike my side, obviously. Um, but David is accomplished. He's a published author. Uh, he's an HR professional. Uh, we used to flip houses together, and um, to this day, we have two dogs named Wiki and Hobbs. And we uh, we love boating. 
although I'm a disabled veteran, uh, I require a safety pilot to go with me, but uh, we still go with friends and I get out there as much as I can. You guys are living the dream. I know. <laughs> I, I think you just charm David with your flying abilities because that's quite a pickup line. That's pretty cool. I, I have to admit, doing that on the first day, it was kind of a... <laughs> if that's a big flex, Pete. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, but um, you forgot to brag about a couple of things. Uh, not all of our <laughs> listeners know that you are our celebrity because you've met quite a few um, high brass people. <laughs> I take it you're talking about Michelle Obama. I am. <laughs> <laughs> so um, for anybody that wants to swing by my office in the charge, um, see some pictures of Michelle Obama and I and uh, Morgan Freeman. So um, when I was an air traffic controller on Martha's Vineyard, um, I was the controller in charge. And if you recall, um, the Obamas actually vacationed out there for all eight years of their um, uh, the presidency. I can't go into detail about the, how the connection happened, but... Um, because it's kind of it, it has to do with some security issues and and, uh, and how uh, what role I played in getting closer to them, but it, you know, because I had escort authority in my position, um, I was asked to kind of hang out with Morgan Freeman um, for a couple hours. And it turns out he's a pilot like I am, and he loves jazz music like I do, and uh, we really hit it off. And then because Morgan was there visiting the Obamas, there uh, was a connection to. Michelle and um, and we got close. So even to this day, um, we're kind of considered a, a friend. So I, I, it's a badge of honor for me. I, I absolutely love to be able to say that. And Morgan <laughs> Freeman actually, uh, it, it's gone now, but he actually did the voice uh, for my uh, my caller ID when uh, not caller ID, but my voice message when people would call my phone and I didn't answer. <laughs> Morgan Freeman saying, "You've reached Pete Rogers' phone." <laughs> oh my goodness, that's <laughs> dope. Kind of cool. People would call me and say. for 22 years before you retired, mm-hmm. which means you served under Donat Santel. Can you give us a little bit of a picture on how it was to serve under this uh, ban on gay service? Yeah, sure. Um, just, you know, this is one of my biggest things about my past is that I think that acceptance can be found in, um, and for gay people or anybody that's uh, yearning to be accepted and find equality. Uh, can be found through good leadership. Uh, I found that in the military, you know, survival for me, uh, not being able to say who I was um, or risk being kicked out just by asking the wrong person if they're okay with it. But I found that if, if I did a good job and I added value to the team and the mission, uh, then I found myself being accepted for the most part. And, you know, even when it was fairly obvious that my commanding officer or coworkers in the military, you know, knew that I was gay, uh, as long as I had their back, was doing a good job, um, and that uh, whoever the, the leadership was above me, you know, it was like an unspoken agreement. You do good, and we'll ignore all that. You know, I think that for me, understanding why people see things differently is the key to seeing things more clearly. You know, we've got to understand and walk in other people's shoes to understand where we need to begin to actually get to a better place together. Yeah, this, for Donat Sontel, so when I first went, in, went into the military, um, that was three years before Donat Sontel was instituted. And so for folks that don't know that type of history, what the military was like before, 
before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, over 20 years ago, if you were found out for being gay, you could actually be put in jail for three years with almost no, no due process under um, Uniform Code of Military Justice. So I was really nervous, but because I you know, didn't have a support network and I needed the military to get through school and to serve my country, um, I was really risking a lot by joining the military um, before Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But, you know, over the 19 years of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, it was a good thing up front. And then by the time it was ended 20 years later, it just felt like it was long overdue for being uh, repealed. I think that, like, for example, um, in my career in the military, um, it was oftentimes it was the, the things that, um, that weren't said or were done behind the scenes. For example, um, just recently, now here we are, 25 almost 30 years later, I had a former commander just recently within the last year uh, approach me and apologize um, because he he lives kind of up the road from me and, um, you know, the neighbors were all friends and everything, but he, he came clean and he said that I was passed over for a promotion and I was kind of marginalized because they knew I was gay. So there was proof positive right there. Um, and I know, Vima, we talked about this, whether I should mention this or not, but you know, there's been other things, you know, while serving um, that, you know, I was physically and sexually assaulted uh, by two heavily intoxicated service members at one point, uh, which left me in the hospital, um, in the civilian hospital off base. And uh, I had to let it go in order to continue my career as if it never happened. Um, and subsequently from that, I definitely began drinking uh, as a measure to self-medicate. So... I eventually, the good news is I eventually discovered therapy and gave up drinking as a source of not dealing with what I've been through. And so, you know, by sharing that, it's, it's important because, you know, if people don't hear or get a chance to understand the cause and effect of, of these things and how deep it goes for some folks, then how are we ever going to get to a better place, you know, in my mind? Um, the light at the end of the tunnel of the silver lining is that when Donut Hotel is repealed, um, Anderson Cooper, uh, with the help of Jeff Chang, who wrote a book on Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, had me on CNN, uh, which is really cool. You know, I, I began to realize kind of what uh, living an open life and marinating in acceptance really felt like. It was like a huge weight had been lifted when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, and um, I had no more fear about being found out or fear of homophobic investigators doing my periodic background check, you know, if you think about it, there's the power that they held over my my continued service, you know, just one homophobic investigator behind the scenes could find a way, knowing that I'm gay, through the background check, you know, to to discontinue service or make it an issue or a red flag, and, and that power over me was just, you know, it was not a good feeling, but when Don't Don't Tell was repealed, it really was a, a new leap on life in, in my career. Yeah, and Pete, thank you so much for sharing your story. I really appreciate it that you open up and let other hear your story from your own own point of view. And also, I am so proud of you that you are now sober. Uh, you're over a year sober. Yeah, it's almost two. It'll be two years next uh, next month. And yeah. that's such a great achievement. I'm yeah. super proud of Congratulations. you. Congratulations. Yeah. You know, and Vima, just since we're since we're talking about it, you know, I, I you know I worked with my leadership team and um they were supportive and i know that you know if there's anybody else out there that's that's struggling and self-medicating like i was there is a way you're not necessarily going to lose your career and you're not 
going to lose your clearance if you do it the right way. And um, so I'm living proof of that. So there's ways to get help, both uh, through therapy and through, um, you know, any measures necessary to, to get to a better place and on more solid ground. So, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of Newark for, for handling it the way they did. I really am. Yeah, and, and for others out there, we'll, we'll say it in the introduction, um, or you'll hear it in the introduction, but we'll let you know um, the number that you can call if you need help um, or assistance or you're looking for therapy. Um, so even though people are hearing it after you say it, but this is a note for ourselves to do it since we do it in the opposite order. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's you know, only so much, and it certainly is dependent upon a person's um, wantingness or willingness, but uh, I'm also available to talk to um, and, and help get a person to those resources to whatever degree I can. One, one of the things I, I find here at Newick is one thing to uh, help people do something to, to help themselves is when they hear a success story like Pete's. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if, if they hear your story, that's going to make a big impact to help people move forward with what's going on in their lives. Uh, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so to continue to your, with your life story, um, you mentioned at the beginning of our call that you were the first LGBT stepmom at Newark Newport. Um, so how did that go forming that position and being the very first one? I think that, um, I don't know, are you asking like what, what my proudest achievement is as the first LGBT stepmom or? Oh yeah, your, your proudest achievement, what do you hope for our employees? What was your your most challenging portion of being the very first uh, LGBT staff home? Well, I think the the challenge upfront was was just you know getting it off the ground. Um, I, I think that you know the EEO office um, should be lifted up for, for taking initiative to do it because it wasn't federally and still isn't federally mandated to have that position. So folks like Matt Souza and Michelle Eddy, you know, really trailblazed in, in getting approval on the position, but I still think once we established it, it was, um, you know, created as we go. But um, I think that getting it off the ground was challenging. But, uh, you know, I think that when when uh, I handed it off to you, Vima, I think, <laughs> I think you really took it and flew with it. So uh, you, you're, you're the one that deserves the credit for really, uh, really making it into something more polished and, and successful. Um, but, you know, my, my, my favorite there's two things that actually jump into my head. There's two parts of this that, that I absolutely marvel and, and love, which is the um, having Jeff Shane come and speak at Newark. You know, I mentioned Jeff earlier. He wrote a book about Don't Ask, Don't Tell. He's a photographer. Uh, he's kind of the, the top of the tier person to go to for Don't Ask, Don't Tell and, and how it affected and how he documented the history of, of that, whole, that whole thing. But to have him fly from California to come out and speak at Newark uh, two years ago was just, you know, I, I looked up to him so much and to have him speaking at Newark and to have Newark support him coming out to, uh, to talk to us was, uh, was pretty much, um, you know, my highlight. But um, I think that also the other thing was um, getting the uh, employee organization off the ground uh, with you, Mima. Um, and you did, not only did you start the employee, LGBTQ employee organization, but you know, I was there in my capacity as the LGBT CEPM alongside supporting you. Uh, but you really got that organization stood up, and then you jumped over and, and took over the LGBT CEPM role. So uh, if there's anyone <laughs> that uh, I am proud of, and, and it's all 
Yay, Bima. You're making me blush. This was supposed to be about you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I agree. The, the talk that Jeff had here in 2019 was amazing. It was very eye-opening and very heart-wrenching. Uh, if anyone wants to see it, it is on the wiki page for the CEPOMS. Um, and if you can't find the link, just send me a message on Fusion and I'll send you the link directly. Um, because we did record it and we have it available for posterity. We couldn't let that one go. Um, so do you have any advice or hope for the next generation of LGBTQ employees at Newegg and at NASB? I think that the, the goal is to get to the point where equality is part of uh, the fabric of our culture, of our culture, which is like the norm. And, uh, and I hope so much so that we don't have to single out and lift up any more any, us any more than we would heterosexual pride month. Now, I might take a little flack for saying that, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's just one of those things where it, it, the success is the, the end of having to do this. It, it, you know, so much so that it's ingrained, that we know we're equal, that we feel equal, that we're you know, not marginalized behind the scenes. Um, you know, I was thinking about this, uh, you know, the bias and prejudice that still occasionally lingers nowadays that we're faced with this is kind of important, is, is less obvious, it's intangible, and it manifests itself in what does not happen, what is not said openly, what is glossed over, uh, and the opportunities not presented to LGBT employees. Uh, you know, I want the generations to come to undo the submerged aspects of bias in today's workforce. But I want us to do it with dignity and respect. You know, I don't want to lose our audience in the process of trying to get, you know, all these things that happen behind the scenes. You know, so, I mean, in today's federal service, you know, if you blatantly, openly, you know, were biased and, and demonstrated it somehow uh, towards the LGBT community, I mean, uh, you know, I just don't see how you can get away with it nowadays. So all of that formerly outward stuff is now submerged and, you know, it's what isn't said and what doesn't happen that, that hurts um, and still takes place to a degree. Kind of like I mentioned earlier with the... Uh, my commander telling me that my career was uh, was being messed with because of people's bias towards me for being gay. Yeah, and that's you're absolutely right. That's where we want to get to, where it doesn't actually matter that you are part of the LGBT community because we are treated equal and we are all on the same playing playing field, but really and truly on the same playing field. And we still have a lot of work to do to get there, uh, working on our work workplace culture, working on implicit and explicit bias. And that's what the SEPAM office is there for, to start working on that, to start identifying those barriers and, and moving towards a place where we are all truly equal on the same level. Mm, I could not agree more. That's very well said, absolutely. Um, so since this is Pride Month, um, or this will be published in Pride Month, one of the questions that I've been asking everyone is, what does Pride Month mean to you? Hmm. Well, <laughs> you know, I've been through a lot uh, of physical and psychological abuse. You know, we talked about that earlier, uh, over who I am and who I love. Um, so I guess Pride for me is a celebration of progress and healing away from all of that ugly awful. Um, you know, I hope that the younger generations are living more, you know, that are living more healthy um, and more integrated and have more of an open 
in life, um, courtesy of those who paved the way, by the way. I hope they see pride not as a party, um, but I hope they really understand the history of why it needs to be celebrated until the day that it doesn't need to be celebrated. <laughs> you know, kind of what we just talked about. It, you know, the day we don't have to celebrate it is the is kind of the ultimate celebration in of itself. You know, you know, I think we have a long way to go until that day, um, but we are making progress. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and what do you hope the NAPSI work for takes away from Pride Month celebrations and everything that we're doing this month? You know, I said before, at the core of uh, good leadership is acceptance. I, I, I don't think we can be uh, one team unless we understand and embrace our differences. Um, as a young 18-year-old uh, joining the military, I deeply yearned for my family, my military, my government, and you know, my social network to accept me. So I take a lot of pride in, in where we are uh, regarding pride and how leadership here at Newark, Newark in particular um, has really gone all in on supporting us and our pride efforts. Um, but I said it before in another way, you know, the challenge is to get pride beyond a month of displays, get speakers podcasts and posters and all that stuff, but to get that sense of pride uplifted into how we generally respect each other and authentically support each other, you know, more than just once a month, but make it every day and make it, you know, in what we do in accomplishing the mission. That's a, that's a great point. Um, and that's my hope as well. So I don't have anything else to add, but Susan, do you have any? I just was wondering, um, you know, like, a lot of people with stories like this, it's both happy and sad. It, you know, it's, it's, it's a mix of everything like life. But I just keep wondering, did you ever reconcile with your family? No, not, not, not really. No, okay. Um, I, I just, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a heartbreaking story because I've always left the door open. Um, you know, through a lot of therapy and, and a lot of time, you know, I, I, I pride myself on being a compassionate, understanding person. In fact, my favorite word is, is reverence. Um, and to have reverence for somebody, you know, you know, it's just a, like I said it before, it's kind of to, to, the first step is beginning to understand folks. And I've tried to understand my, my family. And, you know, it's, I just can't, I just can't get in. You know, there's, there's just no way. You know, my mom died of cancer at 65. And um, she denounced me on her deathbed and would not even let me go to say goodbye, even though I had not seen her in a long time. And um, to this day, there's no acknowledgement of my marriage, uh, of who I am in that sense. You know, if I denounced myself um, and said I wasn't gay, then, then they would, I'm sure they would take me in with open arms, but that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> that's never going to happen. So, but, uh, you know, the door's been open for them. And understand me um, and find me in the common ground. And certainly, I would make it as comfortable and as respectful as I could. But, you know, I've got to live my yeah. life. And, um, yeah. In the meantime, you've built a great life for yourself. Yeah, yeah, we've done good. I mean, who else can say at age 18 they broke the sound barrier and ended up not too many people and becoming <laughs> friends with Morgan Freeman and all that stuff? You know, I, if I died today, I'd be, I'd be content. I'd be okay. <laughs> I feel like you have a lot more left to do. <laughs> well, I hope so. And speaking of a lot more left to do, Dima, yes. um, you know, I, I, I really, honestly, I don't think I don't think anybody can fill your shoes. So I would highly encourage you to apply again for the LGBT step of all. I really want to see you um, continue 
No pressure, Vina. No pressure. No um, pressure. I am so glad that this is a podcast and not a video because I am blushing. <laughs> um, but thank you so much, Pete. I, I appreciate it so much. And I couldn't be here where I am and I couldn't be so outspoken, so unapologetically out if it wasn't for you and the example that you set for myself and a lot of people that have interacted directly with you back in your in your seven days and since we met each other which mm. apparently it's only been three years and i can't believe that <laughs> i feel like i've known you forever i know uh, it's one of the, the biggest qualities i look for in people is uh people that are old souls and uh, you definitely fit that bill and uh, susan i can kind of tell it's there for you too even though i just <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good judge of character. So. Ah, thank but, uh, you. But Vina, you are definitely an old soul, and, and, and I hope to know you for the rest of my life. So you've been an inspiration to me. Oh, Pete, we're gonna have thank to you. end the podcast here because <laughs> I am blushing. Um, but for real, um, this has been a pleasure recording with you, and it's been a pleasure interviewing you. For all our listeners, this is part of our Pride celebrations. But keep pride in your minds. 365, 24 7, because your neighbor, your brother, your sister, your cousin, what what have you, is part of this community. And if you are not part of the community, you can be part of it by being an ally and standing up next to us and helping us break those barriers and living our life authentically and loving unapologetically and having a, a wonderful, successful career. And, personal life. So thank you so much, Pete. Thank you, Vima. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Take care, Susan. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Tangents. You can find this episode and the other Pride Month episodes on the Tangents Wiki and follow us on Fusion hashtag Tangents.